You are listening to the Bridge Community Church Podcast out of Warrington, Virginia. Our church exists to connect you to God, others, and the marketplace. For more information, you can visit us online at bridge4life.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you are blessed by today's message. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see everybody here today. I'm glad you made being at church a priority. I know I've said this before. How many know that if you don't go to church, there's a lot of other options, right? So that says a lot about you and your your commitment and your faith. And so glad that you made it a priority. Today, we're starting a series on the book of Romans called Piercing the Darkness. And uh, we're laying the foundation for the series over the next, well, it'll be... I don't know when I'm going to stop it. But uh, anyway, I hope uh, this is uh, helpful because we know that there's a lot of tension in our culture surrounding some trends. And uh, I want you to know the Bible is not silent about those things. So we're going to be examining the scripture as it relates to that. So would everybody stand for the reading of the word? We're going to start off in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And then we're going to read verses 16 and 17. Let's begin. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The Holy Spirit, I pray as the Word is taught, that it helps us to understand our life, our choices, our decisions, our values, our practices. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would challenge us where we need to grow. I pray that you would grow us in the arenas of life that have yet to be realized, but there's potential if we will grow. And so I pray that insight to come to us in Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. 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 The Lord bless you. Be seated. So anytime I, I start a series, I always like to do a lot of background. So there will be a little more background on this as opposed to the rest of the messages because I like to lay the foundation as to the context of what is happening and why and how we can know what the scriptures are speaking to us. But one of the reasons that I want to speak into this has to do with this first point, these first couple things. Read that with me. What does it say? Text without context leads pretext. How many of you have heard of that before? Good. That means you paid attention the last time I said that. 
The reason I say that is, is because if you don't pay attention to the context of a scripture, you can bend and you can shape it sometimes to fit a con- a, an expression that was never intended. And we see this today. We see that the gospel is being changed and challenged and retaught in different ways that cause people to go, you know, there's something wrong here. I'm not hearing. That's a, they're, they're changing something here. There's, it's off. What's, what's going on? And what you have is this, is they're not referring to the context because they know if they refer to the context, it is very clear what the scripture is saying. So they avoid the context. Now, we live in a day, and I just say this, I recognize probably 30 or 40 years ago when I first started in ministry, I know, I look 36, 37, how could that be possible? Yeah, you laugh too hard. Anyway, how could that be possible But uh, that, we're, that this kind of stuff has, has shifted? Well, I can tell you back then, it was when I was preaching, it was more or less, hey, just tell us what it says, we're good to go, and we're off and running. But because of so many variations of the gospel today, and I will say some of it's not gospel, but being presented as as if it is, people are like, you need to tell me where you're coming up with this. I need the background. I need a little more history because I don't think that's what the scripture is saying. So start off with backdrop. Give me history so that I can be confident in what you're proclaiming is the right thing. And so that's where we are today. And I'm, I'm just saying, personally as a pastor, I'm good with that. I'm glad to share some of that background because I hope some of the stuff I share with you, you put in the margin of your Bible. That way, the next time you're doing devotions, you can have a more meaningful connection to what you're reading there. But I'm well aware of this, quote, new gospel that's being uh, uh, preached in, in a variety of contexts. I'll say this. Some of them are my friends. I disagree with them. But just because, hey, by the way, just because you have a disagree doesn't mean you can't have a friendship. I mean, my goodness. If, if this agreement was, a, was the context for whether you were going to like somebody or not, my wife and I would have made, never made it past dating. Okay? And let's not even talk about your children. Okay, so, you know, dis- we need to stop filtering people. You, oh, you disagree with me on that. Well, I'll have nothing to do with you. Like, no, keep them as a friend and have a, a positive uh, dialogue about whatever that disagreement. But keep the friendship, man. But anyway, let me just share a couple insights here. Much of today's new theology comes from a complete disregard of scriptural context or from an edited context. They, they won't go into the history. They won't go into the backdrop because they're, they know that when they do that, it will, it will kill their new interpretation. So it's, they, just lift, they just lift sentences. They'll lift even one scripture out of its context and they marry it with another piece of, of the scripture. And, and, but again, they won't refer to the writer and what was going on and the history because they know, what they, when, they know when they do that, it shapes it. And it becomes very obvious that what they're saying is not the truth. And so I just give that to you as a tool to be able to decipher who's speaking truth and who's not. Another one is this. Some of the new theology is also a reflection of these leaders' personal lives. Now, you might be surprised that when preachers get together, you know, we talk like anybody else, like how's life, how's the family. And sometimes this comes up in that dialogue like, hey, I've heard you're You've made some significant shifts in your church. Yeah, why are you doing that? Well, and the story generally hinges around even personal developments. And you're going, what do you mean? They go, well, you know, 
I personally have struggled because I've always said something publicly that I wasn't practicing on a private level. Or I'm, this dynamic is unfolding in my family. And I just find it hard to hold the standard because I got family members who were caught in some of this. And so I just, I, I just need, I need to change it because I, I feel like I'm rolling them under the bus if I don't change. And you're going, wow, so now your new guideline for theology is family dynamics. See, the Bible never said I wouldn't have family challenges. It told me how to address it, but the Bible never said if you have a family challenge, feel free to change the text. But that's what happens, and, and I, underst I, I understand the emotion of trying to say something publicly that maybe isn't working for you privately yet, because how many know we're all growing? But when you preach truth, sometimes you have to preach it in faith. Like preaching healing. Has God always healed in my family? No. But sometimes, but you still preach healing because you know God still heals. You believe that, okay? So sometimes you preach in faith. Not because it's happened, but you just know that it's true. That it's the, and so that's why I say you have, to make a, you have to make a decision. Is it God's word or my experience? Now you, and I'm going to get into this a little later, now you can, you, you can see if you change it to your experience, you're going to start drifting into some serious arenas, and you're going to end up in places you never thought you would ever, ever go. So, let me set, so, let me set up the context. How many is for history, one-on-one, at the bridge? Here we go. Let me give you a little background on, on the book of Romans. So, the, the Apostle Paul uh, authored this book on 57, around 57 A.D. Now, that's key. This is about, uh, we think Paul converted to Christianity about 33 A.D., right after, or three years after Jesus. So Paul has now been a Christian for about 24 years. So he already came in, learned on the Scripture. He just got a re-enlightenment about what it was all about. So you can see he's kind of a go-to guy on the theology side, okay? But what you may not know is this. Let me give you a little couple things that affect maybe your perception of the book of Romans. He was actually in Corinth at the house of Gaius when he wrote Romans. And you say, really? And how do you know that, Pastor? I'm glad you asked that question. Because if you will pay attention to the minute details, in Romans 16, 23, it says, Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. He actually tells us where he is. Now, this makes it special for this reason. Corinth was considered the darkest city known at that time. They were morally depraved. They were, in, in every conceivable way, every kind of lifestyle was free-flowing. It was present. It was really the economy, the, the immorality and the idolatry had become the city business. So if people got saved in Corinth, they were going to have to reinvent the economy. Because the whole town was built on the immoral lifestyles, and I will say, all the variety of lifestyles. So Paul is there, right? And he's now writing to the church in Rome, which is the second darkest city. Okay? And I think if you've been around and heard some of the teachings here, you know that Rome was not a very good place to be a Christian. 
Because especially when the onslaught of, of, of killing the Christians, that when Rome was burned down, the killing of Christians, okay, and the Caesars all said they were God, and if you didn't say they were God, they could have you killed on the spot. So there's a lot of challenges. My point being is this. Paul is sitting in darkness writing while he's writing to another part of the world that's in darkness. And if you know that, you read and you go, wow, he really does tackle the big stuff. And I say that because sometimes our challenges today, we think, man, where's all this coming from? I will tell you, it's what Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. All you have is darkness reinventing old sins. Okay? And so Paul is right, he's very direct, he's very clear, but without the background, we don't see that, okay? But the context makes the text more clear to us. Another thing you might want to be interested in is this. He actually didn't physically write the book. He dictated it. And somebody else was writing while he was dictating the book of Romans. And you say, well, how do you know that? I'm glad you asked that question this morning. Romans chapter 16, verse 22. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. So Paul was dictating it. Tertius was writing it for him. So we see that. So it's actually more accurate to say that Paul authored the book. Has everybody got me? Okay, I'm, I know. I knew that was an aha moment for you. <laughs> and then the other part was he gave the book to Phoebe to take to Rome to the church. But what's interesting is this, is his... Uh, validation of who she is. He says, I commend to you. She was a church leader. Yeah, female church leader. He says, I commend to you our sister, Phoebe. Everybody read the next five words. A deacon of the church. Oh my goodness, what was that? Well, they, they couldn't have been Baptists. I'm just Now, let me just say this. I have Baptist friends, and I say that to them, and they chuckle, okay? So there's no shot that was taken there. In fact, some of them who, who know me will probably be in contact with me soon and saying, wow, that was pretty cool. Your people were good with that, right? I said, yeah, and everybody at the bridge is cool with that, right? All right, there you go. Okay, you just got me off the hook. Notice what he says, I ask you to receive her in the Lord, look at, in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. Pause there. He is saying, I am sending you a church leader, she's female, and I expect you to treat her with respect as a leader. I expect for you to treat her with the dignity and respect of any church leader that I would send to you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Paul says, and I have been blessed by her ministry. Wow. Paul validating that. When you consider the background of where Paul came from, that's significant, right? There's a lot of things you learn about the book of Romans that reveal the challenges of Christianity and how Christianity was saying, we are not being a, a subculture of Rome. We are going to be a counterculture to Rome. Need to remember that, all right? They weren't trying to be a subculture. They were going to be a counterculture. 
They were going to be totally and radically different. And by the way, it was that radical difference that brought the persecution to them. Okay? Now, let's begin to look at a little more. So at this time, Nero is the, is the emperor. I don't think I have to expand on that. If you have any type of understanding, Nero was one of the most wicked, immoral, uh, ungodly, uh, bloodthirsty uh, Caesars that there were. In fact, he embraced the lifestyles that Paul wrote about in the book of Romans. Nero himself embodied those lifestyles that Paul was speaking about as being called sin. I know it's graphic, but it, because of the nature of our culture, it needs to be said so that when you read the text, you understand what's going on. Nero had a male boy, and he had done surgery to the best of their ability in that particular day to feminize his partner. Nero executed his mother executed a brother. He executed family because they were a threat to who he was as a person. And then you have the Apostle Paul calling all these things that Nero embodies, he calls them sin. Well, you know, rulers who think they're gods don't like to be told they're wrong. And Paul, I'm kind of getting ahead, says, we read it this morning, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Wow. You see, all of a sudden, there's more in the Bible <laughs> that speaks to where our culture is and is trending towards. The Bible has more to say relevantly when you get into the context than we thought before. Then you go on down, and here's the topics that Paul talks about in, Ro in the book of Romans. Now, let me just say, I'm not going to be going verse by verse all the way through the book of Romans. That would take at least a year. I'm not saying that you couldn't endure it. But I'm just trying to say, hey, let's pick up on the highlights that touch us where we are. So he talks about the basics of the faith because there's a lot of distortion going on. When people said the gospel, what do they mean gospel? Because, boy, that was a big, a big definition. He talks about leadership. He talks about sexuality. He talks about the role of government and the response of citizens to the government. He talks about racism. The racism is in the church. The Jews don't like the Gentiles, and the Gentiles don't like the Jews, and they're in the same building. Boy, isn't that a wonderful place to preach? And Paul's trying to bring peace and harmony and saying, wait, wait, wait. And each felt that they were better deserving of the gospel over the other group. And then he talks about the Holy Spirit. Imagine that, living in such a dark place, you need the Holy Spirit. Well, yeah, if you're going to live where darkness resides, you better have the power of the Holy Spirit to counter the evil spirits. Makes sense, right? And then he talks about unity, holiness, and Christian liberty. The, 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 the uh, concept of grace was being abused. People saying, well, we're no longer bound by these legalistic things. We live under grace, and so really I'm already, I'm forgiven before I sin. Anybody hear any of that lately? I have. This grace teaching that you can just really, you're pretty much off the hook from any type of obligatory living in relationship to accepting Christ because of God's grace. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, I think you're taking the grace element way out of context, which they are. And Paul even had to address that on what's this Christian liberty and what's, what's the standard of holiness when we follow Christ. So today we're going to talk about the basics of the faith. And we actually find ourselves today 
at the same spot that was going on back then, and that was this. When you say the gospel, what do you mean? Because there's so many people now who are distorting what that says, and then you listen to what they say, and you're going, I don't remember, I don't remember being taught that. I don't think that's the gospel. I think somebody is distorting. All this distorted teaching that is happening in our day, listen, they'll stand up and tell you it's the gospel, but when you listen, you go, that's not the gospel. They're changing it. They're morphing it. They're modifying it. So we need to say, okay, before we get into all these other subjects and all these other topics, like what exactly is the gospel? Can we at least get on the same page? So here we go. Number one, everybody, it says foundations of the faith. We see this in the first seven verses. Paul actually lays out the gospel, but he lays it out in a way that you and I aren't familiar with, so we just kind of read it and went, not sure what's there. He actually gave the tenets of the faith so that the rest of his book could be understood, okay? So everybody read point A with me. Read it. We are called... He starts off, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. It all starts with, I follow him, he's not following me. I'm his servant. Jesus is not a God that exists to make me famous. Christianity is not another vehicle that I can hijack to maybe get my name out there. No, I'm a servant. My job, your job, our heart's desire is supposed to be I need to know his agenda and then that becomes my agenda. I'm to serve him. He's not to follow me. I'm to follow him. In fact, sometimes you follow not understanding, but because of trust, you follow. But then he says something else. This word servant, okay? If you go into the Greek, it actually means bondservant. What's a bondservant? Well, if you go back in the Old Testament, we know that there was slavery. And much of it was in relationship to debts. And so, after you worked your debt off, you could be made a free person. But some owners of those ensla- the slaves who were paying off their debts were respectable and good people and treated those in that category with the utmost respect, gave them a roof, gave them a job, paid them, uh, sent their kids to school, gave them purpose and meaning in life. And so when the debt was paid, that slave could go to the owner and say, you know, I'm doing better working for you than I did on my own. I've got, I, I, my debts are paid. I got a job and you're, and you're paying me. And my, my family's got a great life. I, I really don't want to leave. Because this is the job I would be looking for. And so you could become a bond servant. So that's where, if you read in the Old Testament, they would put their ear up against a doorpost and the, person, the owner would take an awe, something to poke a hole in the earlobe, and punch it into the doorpost. And the pierced ear said, when they went down the street, I am a voluntary servant. I am owned, but it's by my own choice. And it told people to respect them. So when your child wants to get their ear pierced, <laughs> that's them saying that they want you to own them. And that you are a wonderful owner and they never want to leave the house. 
because they recognize that they will never ever have it as good as they do right now with you. And some of you said, that's exactly why I don't want him to get an interference, because I want him to go out and get a life. <laughs> All right, just kidding. But anyway, so it says this. I'm doing what I do. I had options. I didn't want them. I'm doing this because this is what I want to do with my life. It's my choice. It's my decision. And I'm a servant. And I put my ear up against the door and I say, own me, Jesus. I'm good with that. Because I, ha I can never have it as good in life as I do with you owning me. We're good. And, and that's what Paul was saying. I'm owned. I am a servant. I am owned by Christ Jesus. Letter B, read it with me. The gospel was not an afterthought or a vision. It is a holy promise. It tells us the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. So again, we read here that this was a strategy. This was a plan by God. So it wasn't an afterthought, it wasn't a fix, it was a strategy, a plan that God had. And what I want you to see, I called it a holy promise, because notice what Paul calls it, he says it's holy scriptures. Notice he didn't say scripture, he's called it holy scripture. And this is equating something with where it declares later in the Bible, it says God is holy. So when we say God is holy and the scriptures are holy, we are putting the scriptures on the same level as God because God's holy and the scriptures are holy. So they go together. So this tells us this, when people start messing with the scriptures, have you ever heard of making a decision and it had unintended consequences? They weren't able to play out. If I make this decision, this is what's going to happen. But here's the unintended consequence. So if God is holy and his scriptures are holy, then that means those scriptures are equal to God. That's why it tells us in Timothy they're God-breathed. So when I say they're no longer at the they're not holy that they have fallibilities in them I have just demoted something that is equal with God which means now I can play with who God is because the same thing the same holiness that defines him is the same holiness that defines the scripture that means you just set yourself up as God Oh no I never said that you may not have said it, but by what you've done, you have implied that. Because the only thing that could demote a holy scripture is something that must be greater than that. And you dismissed it, so you say you're greater. So we're, what we have here playing out in our culture is a humanistic element under the guise that it's a new gospel. No, it's humanism. Because what they're doing is they're elevating themselves. The scriptures are not accurate. The scriptures have fallibilities. The scripture is not the standard. So when you mess with the holiness of scripture, you're messing with the holiness of God. And now the door is open for whatever you want to believe and however. And we get into all this, well... It's your personal choice. It's not up to me. And you're like, come on, man. It's a slippery slope, and it just keeps going down. 
The, let me tell you, the scriptures are holy. I'm not. I don't need to tear the scriptures down to where I'm at. I need to be learning how to get myself where I'm at to where the scriptures are. Amen? Amen. All right. Letter C, read it with me. Jesus is the revealed Son of God through prophecy and his resurrection. So he, re, he, re, he uh, comments about the prophecies regarding his Son, who has, to his earthly life was a descendant of David. We know that Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies in the, New Test, in the Old Testament that were given. And 22 of those prophecies happened in the last 24 hours of his life. Now that's incredible because when you consider that somebody else was in charge of the events in the last 24 hours, and yet with somebody else in charge, he fulfilled 22 prophecies in 24 hours. Well, there's only, you come to one conclusion. Either he is who he says he is, or Rome is really stupid. <laughs> but it's obviously orchestrated by God. That God would even use Rome to fulfill 22 of those prophecies in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. Then it goes, and who through the spirit of holiness. Do you see that word holiness again? Isn't it amazing how that just keeps popping up? Holiness. The spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's saying we have the prophets and all the prophecies. And then we have the resurrection from the dead. Coming back from the dead is a big way to convince people that you're the real deal. I mean, it's amazing. And get this, we read in the scriptures, he stayed on earth 40 days. I mean, Jesus is like walking around. And it tells us at one time over 500 people saw him. So, so that means that numbers of the people that saw Jesus in, in that 40-day period were into the thousands. It's incredible. We read that, listen, he's proven he's the son of God. So you see a couple things here. Now, letter D, read this with me. Genuine faith produces obedience to the teachings of the Bible. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Notice the phrase, obedience that comes from faith. The Bible was written so that you and I would not have to experiment to figure out what's right, figure out what's wrong. If we didn't have some kind of book that gave us a moral guideline, we would all be experimenting. And by the time we got done experimenting, we would have destroyed our lives. We would have wrecked ourselves. And so when we follow the Bible, we can rarely say, yeah, I'm, I'm choosing to put my faith there. In other words, I've already decided what my counsel is going to be in the next crisis that I endure because it's going to come from that book and it's going to tell me what to do. I've had enough history that I trust it. Faith is when you say, even before I know what my next crisis is, I already know where my counsel will come from. Faith is putting my, my trust there that my decision has already been made. I just need to find out what it tells me to do because I've already got confidence in doing it. That's faith. Faith, and it tells us that obedience comes from faith. Jesus even said, so listen to me, it's not, what I pro, it's not what I proclaim, it's what I do. Even Jesus said this in the Gospel of John. 
He said, my disciples will follow my teachings. He said, it's not the fact that you're out here traipsing all over Israel following me. My disciples are the ones who actually listen to what I say and they do it. The disciples, those who are followers actually do what I'm teaching. That's critical for us to know. Because now it comes down to, again, then we need to make sure that whoever's doing the proclamations of the gospel are actually making, that they're following what they're preaching. I thought you'd give a better amen than that one, you know. But seriously. The, the ability to do the scriptures, not just tell people what they ought to do. Is it being done? Is it being followed? And listen to me. Sometimes I follow the scriptures, and I'm praying furiously, please, God, let this work out. But, you know, I may not experience the outcomes that the Bible says are available to me, but that doesn't mean I get to change. I'll give you an example. We've all prayed for God to heal and been in a circumstance where he didn't heal. My faith, though, still preaches healing. And in my heart, I still believe in healing. And in my heart, I still ask for healing. I've seen God heal. I've experienced God's healing. I can't say I've had it every single time. But faith says I still trust that book. I still trust what it says. Even though I would have liked to have seen a different outcome, it play out differently, my faith I trust it. See, we sometimes think, well, if God, you do this, then I'll do this. That's not faith. That's negotiating. I've said this before. It needs to be said. Ready for this? Faith means you go first. Anybody else need clarification on that? Faith means you go first. All right. Last letter. E, read it out loud. We are called to be holy people. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. He thinks people in Rome can be holy. With the darkness that is around them. And by the way, when he wrote it was already bad, the next 13 years was going to be a nightmare. And he says it is possible to be a holy people in Rome. But see, we live in a culture today where people go, well, that's too hard. I'm sorry. But just because you have more homework than the rest of us doesn't give you a pass. Go back to school. Remember when the kid who could get an A and never study, and you would study your brains out, and you'd go and get a C-. minus. And you were so angry. The kid, he didn't even study and he got an A. I canceled my evening. Take the test, it's a C minus. The teacher doesn't like me. I mean, you got all these excuses, right? No, some kids, they just get math easy. And others, it's a real chore, it's a pain, it's work. For, you learn something one day, you forget it the next, and you got to go back. And the other, you know, these other kids, is, you know, it's like I got a photogenic mind. You know, boom, it's just there. And you get aggravated. And I can remember my dad saying, I'm sorry you have to do more homework than other people. Learn it faster. 
You know what? Some elements of the faith come easy to people, and those same elements are very difficult for other people. But just because it's hard doesn't give you a pass. Because he said we're to be holy. If, by the way, if you start tearing down the standard of holy when it comes to what God says we can be, now we're messing with the word holy as it relates to Scripture, and now we're messing with the definition that God is holy. You, if you play with the word holy, it has a domino effect. So I don't need to lower God's standards. I need to raise my expectations of he wouldn't ask me to do that if I couldn't do it. And that doesn't mean I'm not going to stumble along the way. But get up and keep going. Don't use a trip as an excuse to quit. Learn, listen, you haven't failed until you stop trying. Learn from it, get up, and move on. Keep going. You fail when you stop. And you fall and you stay down. Listen, why do you think there's the element of forgiveness in the Bible, man? Okay, I mean, it's, you know what forgiveness tells us? God knew we were going to screw up. He knew it. So he said, let me just, and he, and he said, and I'm going to give you some grace, which means it won't happen right away because I, if I give you consequence immediately, you'd all be dead. So grace gives delayed time and, and uh, from consequences and, and forgiveness says he already knew. Now that doesn't mean that I go off the deep end and just say, well, I can do whatever I want to do. No. No, it just means that I understand the things he's built in to help me. God's pulling for me. He's pulling for you. Am I the only one getting out of this? Thing? So, what, do, what, what does the Bible, notice I said the Bible. What does the Bible have to say about people who are playing all these scriptural twists? Glad you asked that question. Paul actually wrote about it eight years prior. Churches in Galatia were being led astray. People were preaching something that they called the gospel and it wasn't even close. And they started invoking dreams and visions and having supernatural encounters that were informing them that this needed to change. And so Paul, chapter 1, I mean, Galatians chapter 1, he only needed five verses to get to the problem. Notice what he says. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Then he starts calling out their tactics. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Some people were saying, well, I had an angel show up and they told me that this needed to be changed. And Paul says, let them be cursed. That won't... Paul didn't know how to build a church, did he? Like, hey, dude, you can't say those things. It offends people, you know. But he's like, yeah, uh-uh. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let him be under God's curse. Wow. Paul says, I don't care if they invoke kind of some kind of supernatural dream and being showing up and built. He's nope. Don't let him do that. Here's my last point. The gospel has the power to change people and to produce righteousness. So we jump to verse 16. 
Paul is going to be addressing some hot cultural issues in Rome. Pretty confident that, see, that uh, the emperor is probably going to get wind of it. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Living by faith means I trust that book before I even get into the crisis. But notice what he says, I'm not ashamed, I'm not going to apologize for God's standard of sexuality. I'm not going to apologize for God's standard of marriage. I'm not going to apologize. I'm not, he says, I'm not ashamed of God's standards, of what God says is right and what God says is wrong. I am not ashamed. Let me tell you something as you go from this building today. The most powerful thing that you have in your possession is the ability to choose. We have seen history where governments have tried to remove people's individual choice. And we've all seen governments topple. We've all seen nations change because people said, you may not know my name. I may not be a person of influence, but you can't control my daily decisions. I'm going to choose to live this way. What, they're going to follow me around 24-7? You can't be nice to your neighbor. You can't do that. There's not enough monitoring to stop people from saying, I guide my life by biblical values. I'm not a screamer, a shouter. I'm not protesting. I'm not rioting. I'm not trying to tear anything down. But I do have the ability to say, I'm going to run my business square. I'm going to run it fair. I'm going to treat people with respect. I'm going to, I'm going to raise my family right. I'm going to pray over my meal. I'm going to church. I'm going to follow the teachings of Christ of do not kill, do not steal, do not do all these things. I'm following the teachings. You, you, you can't stop my individual choices of doing that because this is how I choose to live. I didn't get that from the state. I didn't get that from a, a political party. I got it from the Bible. Most powerful thing you have in your possession is the ability to choose to live a life that follows the scripture. Nothing can stop it. Nothing, nothing. Rome tried. And 350 A.D. rolled around, and I know it's a couple centuries, but in 350 A.D., half Christianity has been outlawed. Their practices, their beliefs are outlawed. In 350 A.D., half the Roman Empire is, a, is Christian now. And the, and the emperor of Rome says, what are we doing? They're half the empire. They're legal. That was the end of that. There's nothing more powerful than you living a godly life life. Nothing. And everybody said amen to that. Come on, let's stand to our feet this morning as we wrap up. Would you do that? Come on, lift your hands and give him praise that what we have is the power of the gospel through how we live, how we serve, and how we talk, and how we work. Come on, praise him for that this morning.